Hey, so we're so glad that you are a part tonight. You know, I think about um, growing up, I've always had this basic, basic belief in God. For as long as I can remember as a kid and as a teenager, I always thought God was real and God existed. And I remember when we were kids, we would all pray as a family and we would kneel around the bed and my dad would start. And I, would, I just remember closing my eyes and just waiting and waiting and just waiting, you know, for the prayer to finally be done and for my dad to finally finish the Our Father prayer. And I would like have one eye open and I'm just like creeping on him and like, okay, Jesus name, amen. Okay, let's go. You know, and I would, I just, <laughs> that was me growing up. I don't know if you can relate to that, but growing up, I always thought God was real, but to be honest, I didn't really think he was that important. And so I knew, yes, I should believe in him. But I kind of thought that that's, that's where it all ended. But eventually there came this point. It was about in the seventh grade when I began to figure out and really deep dive into what I believed about God. Because I realized a childhood faith, it just didn't seem to work in my real world circumstances. You see, it was in the seventh grade that a lot of my friends, that their parents began to get divorced. And I remember wrestling because I thought that God didn't let bad things happen to good people. And in the seventh grade, I remember seeing a bunch of my friends start dating and then get their hearts broken. And others of them, they would lose loved ones, older brothers, aunts and uncles to things like cancer and car crashes. And I remember thinking, but God, I thought, I thought you wouldn't give anybody more than they could handle. And in the seventh grade, I even remember seeing some of my friends start experimenting with drugs. But the summer after seventh grade was such a pivotal summer for me because that's when I got invited to church. And, you know, I began to realize that what you believe about God is a pretty big deal. And if you think about it, because your beliefs about God, they color and affect so much of your world. Like just this past week, when you have over 30 tornadoes reported tearing across Oklahoma and Kansas and Missouri, ravishing entire cities, you have to ask, is that just God being angry? Did God send the tornadoes? Or is that just Mother Nature at work? Or was that the devil who sent the tornadoes? But wait, if isn't God more powerful than the devil? So couldn't God have stopped him? I know of this, this sweet, sweet family, a husband and wife. They love Jesus. They've grown up in the church since they were kids. And they had this cute little baby. But shortly after birth, there were complications. And within 24 hours, that little baby died. How could you not ask, God, why? How could you not ask, well, God, if you're real, why would you do that? Or the softer version, God, why would you let that happen? Or if God isn't real and it's just natural selection, then why does it seem so unnatural? Or if it was the devil, then again, isn't God more powerful? Or is all of this just, just completely random? You see, what you believe about God is a big deal. And you need to begin wrestling with these big questions of faith. Because the byproduct of a shallow believer who chooses to ignore their doubts is they are inevitably stuck with a childhood faith that doesn't work in their real-world circumstances. And too often that is the case. 
you watch a YouTube video, you read a blog, you talk to an atheist professor, a catastrophe strikes your life, and you are forced to re-examine what you believe and why you believe it. And the truth is this, if we're honest, most every one of us has or has had doubts that they struggle with. Certain things about God or certain things about what religious people do in the name of God or certain things about the Bible that they question. But for many of us, we're kind of stuck in the middle, somewhere between doubt and somewhere between despair. Many, many of you, you have questions that aren't being answered, so you doubt. Maybe you're not 100% sure that you're bought into Christianity because it doesn't seem scientific enough or you've heard of contradictions in the Bible. But for others of you, you're on the other side of the spectrum. You're afraid that God might not be real or that you're losing your faith so you live in despair. Because you're just not sure you want to live in a world where God doesn't exist. And there's just this part of you that craves that security. And yet for others of you, you've experienced what we call a deconversion moment. You grew up in a religious environment. You experienced a childhood conversion. Maybe it was in kids' church. Maybe it was in student ministry. You transitioned to an irreligious environment. Maybe it was a college or a public school or a certain job. And truth be told, you liked it. You liked it a lot. And slowly, God seemed unnecessary. And you began asking questions about your childhood faith. And you kept getting faith-based answers to your fact-based questions. And one day it dawned on you, I don't believe anymore. For others, your experience was a little different. You grew up in a religious environment. You had a childhood conversion, but then you experienced a faith-crashing event. It could have been someone you love passing away, and in those moments, God, he just seems so distant. It could have been a heartbreak, and God just seems so vengeful. And you begin asking adult questions about your childhood faith, but you kept getting faith-based answers to your fact-based questions, and one day it dawned on you, I just can't believe anymore. And for the many versions of Christianity that there are out there, Catholics and Protestants and Baptists and Pentecostals, the problem is most of us have believed in some version of God that isn't real. Many of us have trusted a somebody told me so God. Maybe you had a pastor who said God's like this. Or your Sunday school teacher said, God's like this. Or your grandma said, or your, 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 your mama said. There's a little joke, a water boy reference right there. And you inherited a version of God. While others here were taught about a Bible tells me so, Jesus. And that's where, you know this one, where every answer to every problem in the whole entire world is always, but the Bible says. Hey, Hey, mom, should, should I buy these shoes or these shoes? Well, mijito, the Bible says, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. So, and you're like, what's that even mean? <laughs> you know, like, what do I do with that? Or, hey, dad, are dinosaurs real? And he's like, well, son, the, you know, the Bible didn't say Noah took dinosaurs on the ark. So, sorry, Barney, <laughs> you know, you can't account for that one. And regardless of what is reality, regardless of what you see with your own eyes, regardless of what you have experienced, the answer is the same, and it just doesn't make sense. 
And the truth is, many of us have been stuck with a childhood faith that doesn't work in our real-world circumstances. And for that reason, some of you and some of your friends have walked away from faith in God. But let me submit to you a thought. What if, what if the God that you walked away from was a God that really, truly never existed in the first place? What if the God you stopped following was never really God at all? Everything you believed about him, the way you thought he was, what you thought he was like, what if that wasn't like what God really is at all? And today I want to challenge some of these, somebody told me so gods in pursuit of truth. Because I believe some of us have walked away from God, not realizing the whole time we'd been misinformed and who we thought God was isn't who he is at all. And so some of us, we grew up with what I call the bodyguard God. Your whole life, you heard God will take care of you. Or maybe you heard God watches over good little boys and good little girls. And somewhere along the way, you interpreted that to mean God will not allow bad things to happen to good people. And there are tons of people in this category. There's so many people who have abandoned God over an intense sense of personal pain and suffering. A family member gets cancer. A friend has a healthy pregnancy, but they deliver a baby with no heartbeat. Or their faith is shipwrecked over massive amounts of pain and suffering in the world, genocide, war, starving children without clean water. But listen, God never claimed he would not allow bad things to happen to good people. Yet many of us believe that. Why? Because chances are somebody told you that. And that's why this is a somebody told me so, God. And if you think about the way Christianity started, I mean, if you really, really think about it just for a moment, the whole thing started with a horrible, terrible thing happening to a really, really good person. And all of his early followers, horrible, terrible things happened to all those good people too. So if you've lost faith in the bodyguard God, then good, he doesn't exist. Then there's the on-demand God. This is the version of God who you would assume responds to fair and selfless requests the way we would. We would expect God to do at least what we would do for others. Maybe you asked for an answer and you heard nothing. You asked for a sign, but you saw nothing. You asked for a miracle, you received nothing. And somewhere along the line, someone told you or you interpreted that God will always respond in the way that you expect. You ask him a question out loud, so you expect him to answer out loud. Or you expected him to answer your prayer your way. But why would you assume that? It's because you believe in in an on-demand God who isn't real either. And then there's the boyfriend God. The boyfriend God, his presence is always, always felt. You've had those, you know, you've had those big worship moments. You're at passion or you're at conference and you just feel like the presence of God is just surrounding you in these moments. Or maybe you've had these intimate, quiet time moments where you've just sensed God's presence in such a big way. But step back a few years and you've been a Christian for a little while and for whatever reason you just don't feel God anymore. 
And since you don't feel his presence, you assume that he must no longer be present. But can I be honest with you? Is that okay? Nowhere in scripture is a relationship with Christ related to our feelings. And in fact, if you think about it, Jesus was doing his most hell-defying work at the moment that he felt God the very least. But who was it that told you you would always feel God? And that if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. Or that maybe God has left and departed. Why do you believe that that's the way God works? And here's an interesting thought. The things that we are least aware of tend to be the things that are the most constant. Think about it. When the temperature's perfect, nobody stops and says, man, it feels amazing in here. Right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and shouts, I just feel like an American. <laughs> but you are. <laughs> Most of you, right? <laughs> Nobody goes to school and they're like, oh my goodness, I feel so student today. And this is an area that it trips up so many well-intentioned Christians, especially Pentecostals. Because we may not always feel God the way that we used to. But who told you it was supposed to be this way? This is another, somebody told me so, God. Now, the next version of God is one that many of you have been trying to run from and trying to escape from forever. He's called the guilt God. And you interpret God this way. As you're trying to listen, as you're trying to discern God's voice for your life and what he's trying to say, you assume, is this enjoyable? You just assume God's in heaven and he's like, no, that's not for you. And you assume, man, is this fun? And God's in heaven and he's like, uh-uh. And you, you just assume, man, is this something I would really, really love to do? Then God's like, nah, dog, not you, not today. And you believe that although God may love you, he doesn't like you. And the guilt stays with you even after you've stopped believing in this God. But listen, Fred, this God, he isn't real either. I'm not sure if a priest told you this or a pastor told you this or your parents, but life is better without the guilt God. And the good news is this isn't who God is at all. And for some, you've encountered the anti-science God. At some point in your life, you've been told that you must choose between science and religion. In church, you've been told that God created everything, but at school, you're told that the Big Bang created everything. At church, you're told that God made everything in six days, and then at school, you're told that a Big Bang made it over the course of 13.8 billion years. And you can see why so many Christians feel like they have to choose between God or between science. But the hard thing is this, when many of us have questions, it feels like we're being told, quit thinking and start believing. You go to biology class, you have all these questions. So after school, you go to your pastor or your parents, and they just say something like, honey, you just need to have more faith. You watch a disturbing video on YouTube that makes a very convincing argument for atheism or evolution, and you go to the Christians in your life, and instead of getting fact-based answers to your fact-based questions, you keep getting faith-based answers to your fact-based questions. But let me tell you, God or science is a false alternative. Think of it this way. If you're a Christian and you get sick, you don't get on the Westover app 
and down and go straight to church and you're like, I need to see a pastor, like ASAP, like immediatamente, like I need to see a pastor right now. You're like, Pastor Tio, that doesn't mean what I think you think it means, right? You, that's not what you do. And, and can you imagine, instead you go to a doctor, you get your blood drawn, they send it to a lab, you get tests done, you wait by your cell phone, and then the doctor calls and he says, we just think God's trying to tell you something. <laughs> no, right? We want a natural explanation. We want a natural solution. Hey, what's wrong? What medicine, what treatment do I need? And if when it comes to illness and sickness, we're all about science, and if we lean into science for our health, why do we reject science everywhere else? And I would say if you're having a conflict in this area, most likely it's not a science problem, it's a theological problem. And here's the thing, around here, your pastors, me included, we're so crazy that we actually believe that God created the entire world. Listen, we actually believe that he created the entire universe and everything in it, everything around it, every law of science, and therefore we believe that every scientific discovery that can be made is just one step closer to us finally discovering how God did it. You see, we're not afraid by science, we're excited by it. And the last somebody told me so, God, is the gap God. This is where we feel like God is only God as long as there are questions that are too big for us to explain. For instance, I don't know how my brain works, so it must be a miracle that I can even think. But the problem is what is unexplainable today may be explainable tomorrow. Listen, I don't know every detail about how the brain works, but scientists can tell you that when you learn something, a dendrite is formed and it's like this wrinkle on your brain that sparks these nerve connections that allow information to pass back and forth through your mind. But when God conveniently shows up as an explanation for everything we can't currently explain, we are doing our concept of God injustice. You get a parking spot when they're all filled and you're like, oh my gosh, it was a God moment. God did that. And the problem is, because the list of stuff that we can't explain is getting smaller and smaller over time, and the list of stuff we can explain is getting longer and longer over time, because what is unexplainable today just may be explainable tomorrow. And if all the evidence for your faith rests only on what you cannot explain, then once the moment comes that it can be explained, you're in trouble. So as a result, you're afraid of science. You're afraid of naturalistic, scientific explanations because they hurt your theology. They shatter your view of an inexplicable God. But friend, here's what you have to understand. If everything were explained and explainable, it would not explain away God. Let me say that again. If everything were explained and explainable, it would not explain away God. If you were to understand everything about your smartphone, about how the oleophobic screen works and how the circuit board processes and the intricacies of how facial recognition works and fingerprint ID and all of it, and suddenly there was no more mystery to it that would not automatically cause you to believe that no one created it. Friends, we believe that science is the result of a God who created everything in a wise, 
orderly, predictable fashion and then rested. And when he rested, God's order of things was set into motion. Therefore, the world continues to have systems and predictable rhythms. Rhythms that can be tested against scientific methods. Systems that can be measured. Think about it for a moment. We believe that we live in a predictable, stable, and explainable universe. And that's because God created it so. And as we discover the whys behind the what's, that doesn't make him any less magnificent. But my question to you is, has your version of God grown up like you have? Or do you still think of him exactly the way you did when you were a kid? The same way you understood the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, did you outgrow your version of God? Are your grown-up questions undermining your childhood faith? Just for instance, the question, where do babies come from? Some of you are like, oh my gosh, my middle schooler's in here. (laughs) The way you answer that question is different for a five-year-old, hallelujah, than for a 15-year-old, than for a grad student in medical school. Each answer should be true. You you shouldn't lie. If y'all are in here, they're not from a cabbage patch, okay, or a stork, okay? But at the same time, We accommodate to a child's capacity. The five-year-old is told that babies come from their mama's tummy, and that's true. But a 15-year-old, for a 15-year-old, a mama's tummy kind of God is not getting the job done. And this is why many of us outgrow our version of God and stop believing and move on. But it's time to ask better questions. And it's time to seek out better answers. And if you've walked away from God because of this, let me challenge you to ask, did you walk away from a version of God that never existed? Could it be that your childhood faith doesn't stand up to your real world circumstances because the whole time you were believing in a God that wasn't even true in the first place? And so here's another question, maybe even a bigger question. If that's who God isn't, then just who is God? So let's start with some research, with some fact-based answers. According to historians, atheists, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, one historical fact that they all agree on is that there really was a guy who walked the earth and his name was Jesus. Listen, this isn't for dispute from a historical standpoint. Any credible historian, atheist or not, does not debate this because the evidence points in this direction. And here's what we know about Jesus. From the people who followed him, but also from the people who didn't like him, and also from the people who didn't agree with him, and from the people who weren't his followers. Here's a quote from a Jewish historian that lived roughly 37 to 100 AD. He was born and he lived in a generation of people that were eyewitnesses to Jesus who saw him teach, many who even saw him crucified, and his employers, listen, were the emperors. Vespasian, Titus, Domitian, who were not for Christianity, but were absolutely against Christianity. And here's what he wrote. He said, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Flavius Josephus. 
Here's a quote from another Jewish religious leader that was obviously, obviously opposed to Jesus. He said this, Jesus the Nazarene practiced magic and deceived and led Israel astray. So friends, listen, the existence of God isn't in debate. In fact, strangely enough, his miracles aren't in debate. Not everyone agreed that his miracles were from God, but they didn't, they didn't disagree that he did miraculous or magical things. And here's what we find. There was a real man who walked the earth named Jesus. And here's why people followed him. At first, it's because he was an intriguing teacher. People thought that what he had to say was interesting, and they enjoyed listening to him. He taught differently than the other religious teachers. Other people followed him because he did miracles, and they wanted to see one or experience one. I mean, blind people somehow followed Jesus. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself, right? All kinds of sick and hurting people. And here's the big reason why people followed him. He told his disciples. He told the crowds. He predicted even to his enemies how he was going to die. Now, the truth is anyone can do that and somehow force it to happen. But Jesus not only told everyone how he was going to die, he also told everybody when he was coming back to life. And it wasn't via reincarnation or via some other wimpy, unconvincing, fortune cookie, horoscopy kind of way. You know, like, when a gentle breeze caresses your cheek in the summer sun, you'll know that I'm with you. <laughs> it wasn't that. Jesus said, I'm coming back to life. Same body, same skin, same Jesus. And it's not going to be in a thousand years when you don't know what I look like. It's going to be in three days. And here's the crazy part. People saw him die. Believers, followers, haters, enemies. The news was everywhere. And those who were believers, listen, this is so important, they actually gave up. When they saw the person they thought was God die, they stopped believing. Peter went back to fishing. Thomas stopped believing. Even the women who followed Jesus, they went to prepare his body for burial because they didn't think he was coming back. And Jesus did come back. And everyone who had stopped believing, they started believing again. Friends, you see, you don't need faith to see physically with your eyes. Someone you saw die, who you can now see physically with your eyes, is alive again. You don't need faith to believe it when you can touch it with your hands and smell it with your nose. The people who followed Jesus after the resurrection were not following Jesus out of faith. They were following Jesus out of fact. People followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. For them, listen, there was no leap of faith. He was dead. We saw him die. We saw him buried. We touched him. We helped bury him. He wasn't breathing for hours and days, and now he's alive. He's walking around. He's eating fish, and he's eating bread. And listen, it doesn't take faith. The people closest to him who saw him with their own eyes, they wrote about it. So did many people who, did, who weren't close to him. They wrote about it also. But the stuff written by the people who actually knew him, they all said pretty much the same thing. Guys like John, he was one of the 12 disciples. He and his brother both followed Jesus, and he was so close to Jesus and his family that he took care of Jesus' mom after Jesus died. He saw with his own eyes Jesus crucified and come back to life again. 
James, Jesus' own brother, who many scholars believe was not even a follower of Jesus when Jesus walked the earth, but became a follower of Jesus after he saw him come back to life three days later. Luke, who was a well-known and well-respected doctor and historian, who was employed by the Roman government to research whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. By doing interviews with people who knew Jesus, some who were on his side, some who were not. And from what we can tell, he even went so far as to interview the doctors who saw people who claimed to be healed, just to check it out. And many people believe that Luke wasn't a Christian when he began his research. Because Luke was on a mission to do unbiased research to find fact-based answers to this faith-based problem of Jesus. So the writers of the New Testament were people who knew Jesus. And their writings were published by people who knew Jesus. And they were accepted as being factual documents by people who knew Jesus, so much so that they were meticulously copied by hand on wax tablets that were these expensive journals that people used to write down important info. And in the first century, there were thousands of these documents that were distributed and circulated around Rome and Jerusalem and Egypt. This means that if there were any words that didn't match up, you had thousands of documents with which you could check it with. And here's the thing. They did not make copies of these writings because they believed they were inspired. They made copies because they believed they were true. The New Testament, as we know it, was written somewhere between 46 and 69 AD. No later than 86 AD. That means the New Testament, as we know it, was written by a generation of people who knew Jesus and knew eyewitnesses and could verify and fact check everything. So when we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. This was a song that the followers of Jesus in the first 300 years of Jesus' death couldn't sing because although there were thousands of copies floating around, not everybody had a Bible in their hands. But yet their faith grew. But yet the news about Jesus spread. Why? Because it was not a faith based belief. It was fact-based truth. Jesus was dead and they saw him. Now Jesus was alive and they saw him. So when we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, we should be singing it like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, because Peter saw his friend murdered and had breakfast with him three days later. What we should be singing is Jesus loves me, this I know, because the 11 disciples saw Jesus dying and they saw him dead. And three days later, he was alive again, eating fish, eating bread, chit-chatting with them. And as a result, they were eyewitnesses to the biggest, most important paradigm-shifting event on the earth, and they were willing to die for it. Friends, the authors of the New Testament did not just document what they believed, they documented what they saw. Christianity didn't disrupt an empire because of belief, but because of a resurrected Savior. Christianity did not begin faith-based. Christianity began fact-based. And I love the way Jesus said this. This is so good, John 14, 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves the evidence, the proof, the fact-based stuff. Listen, you don't have to throw your brain out the window to be a Christian. 
And if Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and actually did it, then there's something to say about this guy. He knows stuff. He's got powers. And I think he's worth listening to. And here's what he said. He said that he came from God, John 14, 7. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So listen, if you really, really, really want to know who God is, then you've got to get to know who Jesus is. You've got to spend time with him. And listen, hear my heart when I say this. You have to get to know him not just with your eyes closed, imagining what he's like during worship, but also with your eyes open, studying and memorizing what he was and is like through his word. There's a balance. John chapter one, it reads like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who has come from the father full of grace and truth. If we could bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you. Father, for those of us who we've held an incorrect, inaccurate belief too long about who you are, I pray that right now you would help us surrender those false beliefs for the truth of who you really are. For those who've believed in the boyfriend God or the guilt God or the anti-science God or any one of them and have been hurt by them, God, right now, we lay those down and we ask that you would begin to help us recast our image of you. And Lord, for those listening who've been wavering between doubt and despair, I pray that they would begin to embark on a journey for answers and allow you to prove yourself because our doubts and our fears don't scare you. Father, right now as we turn to your son, who is the word for guidance and revelation as to who you really are, we ask that you would make yourself known to us, that we would recognize you and receive you and allow you to make us into children of God that you would continue to make your dwelling among us, that we would choose to live for you and for your glory and your honor and your fame in Jesus' trustworthy name. Amen. 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 Friends, we love you. We love you, and we are so glad that you decided to join us tonight. If you are a high school senior or a young adult, we'd love to invite you over to our student center for Connect Night. God bless you and you're dismissed.